You're listening to KMUZ, Turner. Visit our website at kmuz.org to see our complete program schedule and learn more about supporting KMUZ. Welcome to the Forum, our weekly public affairs program. Today's forum is a recording of a lunchtime panel organized by the Salem City Club, examining lessons learned from the pandemic by Oregon's service sector. Another discussion earlier this year tackled the manufacturing industry and trade. And this time, a human factor is in the spotlight as we learn about service jobs, including the wide range often referred to as the hospitality industry. Program lead Russ Beaton introduced the speakers. Today we have the second program in our two-part series on the impacts on our local economy of the pandemic. And we're very pleased to have with us today uh, two people that many of you might already know. Uh, Jason Brandt, who is the executive director of the uh, hotel motel hospitality industry here for here in Oregon. And Jason will be uh, giving a broad overview of, of the impacts on the service sector um, across the state. Uh, he's been going around the state doing this for some time now. We're really looking forward to hearing what he has to say. Uh, after that, we will hone in more on a local uh, business that many of you already uh, know and love, and that is uh, the owner of the Wild Pear, Cecilia Ritter James. And uh, she'll be saying a little bit more about exactly what specific impacts have been uh, have been experienced on profits, on opening, on workforce, and uh, again in the in the restaurant sector that uh, I know many of you have had great pains in in not being able to enjoy more in the last few months, and hopefully that will change soon. So first, I'd like to uh, invite uh, Jason Brandt to chime in here. Uh, Jason is, of course, uh, the former director of uh, the Salem Chamber of Commerce. And uh, indeed, he and Cecilia know each other and have both expressed a great pleasure in appearing together today. So Jason, turn it over to you and welcome. Thank you, Russ. I appreciate the kind words and it's a pleasure to be with everyone. Thank you for having us at the Salem City Club. I have now uh, been at the Oregon Restaurant and Lodging Association as their president and CEO for almost seven years, but uh, my wife Natalie and I still live here in Salem. Uh, we have uh, three kids. Uh, we're pretty close to West Salem High School and Chapman Hill Elementary. All of our kiddos are 11 years old or, or younger, so an absolute pleasure to be a part of this community and really appreciate the opportunity to share a little bit with everyone about how Oregon's second largest private sector industry has fared uh, during a two-year historic pandemic. And it has not been easy. Uh, so uh, looking forward to jumping in here and sharing a PowerPoint with you. A little bit about us, the Oregon Restaurant and Lodging Association. Uh, we have over 2,800 members uh, across the state. Uh, we have uh, everything from your quick service restaurants, where you go through a a line to get food in a drive-through lane, all the way to fine dining restaurants and everything in between. And our primary focus is to support local independent operators, whether they are lodging operators or restaurant operators. Uh, that really makes up the bread and butter of our organization. We exist as a state association to protect, improve, and promote those businesses and the massive impact they have on Oregon's statewide economy. We have over 2,800 locations. You might wonder, well, gosh, how many locations are there 
uh, as a whole. You know, if everyone was a member of Orla, and that's important to remember too, we're a nonprofit organization. So everyone has the option to voluntarily join uh, Orla if they want, but there's no obligation to do so. So we do not receive any tax revenue or any mandated funding streams that allow us to stay in business. So we are a small business ourselves. I have the pleasure of working with 15 other full-time professional staff. Um, and that was a very similar reality when I was at the Salem Area Chamber of Commerce as well. Uh, speaking of the Salem Chamber really quick, I do want to uh, give them a great deal of credit for their Salem Eats product. Uh, if you've had the chance to be on Facebook and maybe you've engaged the Salem Eats group, they have thousands and thousands of people that are actively engaging in conversations about food and new restaurants that are being explored and, and experienced. Um, so I just, I want to give our absolute uh, strongest recommendation and acknowledgement to the Salem Area Chamber of Commerce and their current leader, Tom Hoffert. Uh, they are one of your business partners and Salem Eats is one of the best products at the local level that I've seen to support our local restaurant community anywhere in the state. So hats off to them. Uh, but to answer that question earlier, we have about 10,000 food service restaurants uh, in Oregon, 10,000 places. Uh, so on average, we have about one in five that are, are members of our association. On the lodging side, there's about 2,500 lodging establishments uh, outside of the short-term rentals that exist. And many, uh, many more of those are coming online, uh, really across all regions of the state. You can see there a little bit of information about how much our industry contributes to the statewide economy. Uh, so I invite you to kind of take a look at those numbers. And this PowerPoint has been shared with City Club leadership. So if you do have an interest in perusing the slides at a later date, please feel free to do so. Um, the lodging industry here is very complex. Our, our tourism industry has an incredible foundation uh, of support through lock, uh, taxing streams. We have a 1.5% statewide lodging tax that everyone plays or uh, pays regardless of where you stay overnight in hotels. Uh, and that 1.5% helps fund the operation of Travel Oregon. And that's our uh, destination marketing organization for Oregon. They're entrusted with building Oregon's brand and bringing in domestic and international travels here to Oregon. Um, so a very great partnership with them and everything that they do through their leader, Todd Davidson, who's the CEO. And, uh, and then on the restaurant side, uh, just so much happening there. Uh, before the pandemic, if you include restaurants and lodging together, we had over 180,000 Oregonians employed by this industry. Uh, right now, we're at about 160,000, so we're still about 20,000 short. And I'm sure Cecilia and other local restaurants in the Salem area can tell you all sorts of stories about how challenging it is to uh, retain our workforce currently and also recruit new employees to meet the customer demand that currently exists. So um, lots of things happening. Uh, go to the next slide here and just talk a little bit about employment in Oregon. Some of you might've seen the stats from the Oregon Employment Department, but our high point on unemployment was back in April of 2020, 13.2%. And as of Dece December's numbers, we got down to 4.1. But total jobs in Oregon, just under 2 million of our 4 million citizens here. Uh, a lot of things have, have happened when it comes to the recovery, and, and one of the most fascinating uh, components to me is how quickly 
we're recovering from the pandemic overall across all industries uh, compared to the Great Recession. And uh, we'll go into that too, and I'll share a couple graphs as to just how quickly we're rebounding compared to what I would call a slow uh, kind of sludge through uh, a period of the Great Recession that lasted uh, a number of quarters to get back to where we were before the, before the Great Recession hit back in 2008. But as of right now, um, this summer, we're projecting that uh, we will recover all of the jobs that have been lost from the pandemic. And the Omicron variant might have delayed that projection. It's possible that uh, it's a little delayed uh, with that new variant. And we, of course, don't know if there's more variants to come. Um, but overall job growth through 2030, as projected by the Oregon Employment Department across all industries, is 16%. So remember that number, 16%. Um, in our industry, uh, it's actually going to be 46% job growth between now and 2030. Um, there's a slide in here that will tell you a little bit more about that, but that's over 73,000 jobs uh, in the leisure and hospitality industry in Oregon that's projected to be added between now and eight years from now in 2030. And again, that's an Oregon Employment Department statistic. So 16% overall industries, 46% growth for Oregon's second largest industry, the hospitality industry. So here's that graph showing you the red line, how quickly we're getting um, back on track and what the Great Recession looked like and how long it took, the prolonged nature of that recovery. It's very different realities uh, when we look at our recessionary times. Here's the stat I was just mentioning. So 46% growth, just over 73,000 jobs. Um, we've lost 51,700. So you heard me mention that we had about 180,000 Oregonians employed pre-COVID and we're at about 160 or so now. So some of those jobs have been re re uh, recovered. Of course, that's a 20,000 job gap, but at our uh, deepest point, we had lost over 50,000. So we have recovered some, uh, we continue to recover more. And the projections through 2030, this is an important asterisk on that job growth. I want people to know uh, on this call and those that might watch this on CCTV at a later date, that seven out of 10 of those jobs that were projected to grow, those are just simply replacing the jobs that have been lost. So three out of 10 new jobs are net new jobs for the hospitality industry. We get this question a lot when we do media interviews around the state with local news channels and uh, with other publications and how many restaurants have we lost? One of the things that I just want to make sure people think about when you you uh, take some time to, to focus on the restaurant industry is it's a very unique type of business um, with unique realities when you do close your doors. Uh, when you close your doors, it's, uh, it's very possible that you're leaving behind a lot of sunk costs within the footprint of the restaurant. Think your commercial equipment, um, other fixed costs that you can't necessarily carry with you. And a lot of times when you have someone that goes out of business in the restaurant industry, there's someone else waiting in the wings to leverage those some costs that were left behind. And um, sometimes it takes a second or a third owner in a restaurant footprint before you're able to find sustained success uh, within that local business model. So here, what I'm sharing with you are numbers uh, with a third-party data partnership that we enjoy with the National Restaurant Association. So these are Oregon-specific numbers with CHD expert as the data provider. But you can see here that in 2020, we lost almost 1,200 restaurants. That's a gross loss. But even in 2020, even with the pandemic, 
we had 770 locations attempt to make a go at it. We probably all know someone too that uh, has uh, someone with a, a secret recipe, whether that's a lasagna or something else. And we do have one of those uh, really, I think, captivating American dream stories because everyone, I think at some point in their life has thought about, oh, could I run a restaurant? Could I make a go of it? Could, could I be successful in this space? Because uh, we all have the opportunity to, of course, uh, you know, cook at home and, and provide food for our families and our friends. And I, I've always just found that number so fascinating. 770 openings, even during COVID, when we were going through openings and closures and openings and closures, as I couldn't imagine a, a time of more suffering for our local restaurants and, and some of our lodging establishments as well, depending on where they're located in the state. And then total restaurant closures in 2021, we recently got this data now that we're in a, a little bit into 2022, but just over a thousand. Um, and you see there that the data provider was able to start segmenting this out beginning in 2021 between permanent and temporary closures. So just all, all uh, encompassing here, we're uh, projected that we've lost a net loss of about 650 restaurants out of about 10,000 that existed pre-COVID. So that gives you kind of a, a sense as to where we currently are. Now, some people might be wondering uh, when they look at graphs like this and then the one that will follow on lodging, uh, there's an up and down seasonality to our industries. And that, that probably is no surprise uh, to the audience here. When you think about it a little more directly, I mean, we are working very hard and at full employment uh, in the summertime and the shoulder seasons are getting more popular and are becoming more successful throughout this state, but our low times typically are, are the winter. But my goodness, if you've noticed what I've noticed over the last five years, and I've been having these conversations with Todd Davidson at Travel Oregon when it comes to how we promote and market our state, it seems like the winters are getting milder and milder. So one of our goals as an industry is to do a better job providing year-round employment. Uh, given how big we are and how many paychecks we provide, uh, we want to make sure that we have as much consistent business, regardless of the season, as possible. The last thing we want to do as an industry is provide someone a great opportunity where they're developing their interpersonal skills, helping learn problem-solving ability, uh, you know, being in these positions that they can take with them no matter what industry they choose. We have countless people that started as dishwashers that now own their own restaurants. Uh, we're the most diverse industry in the nation. Uh, some people are surprised to hear that half of Americans, half of all Americans have had a job in a restaurant at one point in their lives. And one third of all Americans had their first job in a restaurant with so many kids and mine included staring at screens uh, for most of their days. I can't think of an industry that's more important to be a part of America than uh, the restaurant and lodging industry. It, it truly is America's training ground. And we even have studies that prove you start in our industry and you develop the interpersonal skills in our industry, and you will make more money regardless of what industry you go to over the rest of your professional career. And to me, that's a testament to how well we can train people on interpersonal skill development and, and teach people how to problem solve in the moment and meet those expectations of customers when they arrive at our door. So we're trying to get rid of this up and down, up and down volatility with employment based on the season. And time will tell how, how well we uh, do this. And I, I'm hopeful that we'll have a better story to tell with more consistency with year-round employment over the next decade. So kind of last comments here, and then I'll turn it over to Cecilia and introduce her a little bit. 
Um, but a few things that I think are important to remember. Um, although net restaurant closures are surprisingly low, thousands of restaurants are carrying debt loads that they've never carried before. So we've had some amazing programs out there, including the payroll protection program. There were two different rounds of federal funding uh, for restaurants and other industries as well um, that could kind of prove a need and were eligible to receive these funds. And then employee retention tax credits are a huge deal as well. So six-figure tax credit revenue back in the hands of local restaurants and lodging operators in many instances. Uh, and that's those are tax credits for keeping people on your staff for all quarters of 2020 and then the first three quarters of 2021. So if you know a restaurant owner or uh, want to reach out to us, we actually have a program right now to make sure that all of our members um, determine whether they are eligible for employee retention tax credit dollars if they have not filed yet with the IRS, because you can go back and you can amend all of your quarterly payroll tax forms. And for some of our members, they're getting over $100,000 back. And that can be the difference between keeping your doors open as you're trying to get out of this Omicron variant hurdle and, and back to better times, we hope, or closing your doors forever. Probably the biggest thing that I talked to Governor Brown about and my, my next opportunity to, to have a conversation with her is next week. And um, we talk about the inequity that existed in the federal relief program that was the Restaurant Revitalization Fund. And you can see here in the, the second point, um, the biggest travesty to me in our relief approach is the fact that we had 2,337 restaurants in Oregon receive funds that helped make them whole from the first part of the pandemic. Um, this does not include all of the, the issues with Omicron. So I want to be careful in making sure people know it didn't make people whole, but it helped a lot um, for the first iteration of the pandemic. But we had 2,593 restaurant operators that haven't gotten anything. So you can imagine this, the challenge and uh, the issues that we, we struggle with when you have a mom and pop restaurant on one street that got money that's competing with another restaurant down the street that got nothing. And that, that just seems very un-American to me. So we're working very hard to replenish the restaurant revitalization fund at the federal level. And Governor Brown is very, very um, supportive of that effort. Uh, number three point here, the lodging industry uh, continues to see significant gains. We have had lodging operators achieve record-breaking revenue. And we think that's somewhat based on the displacement of people that otherwise might have stayed in Portland that are going to the coast, Central Oregon, the Gorge, and, the, and other regions of the state. So um, secondary markets across Oregon have done quite well on overnight stays. Portland is still really struggling with the lack of corporate travel policies that allow people to come back for conferences and multi-day events. And we really need to see that business travel come back online in order to get Portland's locking, lodging ecosystem back on track. We do see a lot of adaptation and technology. I think uh, you know, five years from now, it'll be pretty common for all of us to have our phone, have our menu, uh, purchase items from the menu on our phone, have a little notification that tells us how long it's gonna be until a runner brings that food to us. So those changes are coming. And, and when you see more technology, it doesn't necessarily mean it's gonna be uh, less quality food. You're gonna see that across all types of business models within restaurants. And last but certainly not least, uh, the supply chain constraints, inflationary pressures, and the workforce shortage issues 
uh, are going to continue to persist throughout 2022. So we have our work cut out for us. There's three legs of the stool in the restaurant industry. Um, you need customer demand, you need a reliable workforce, and you need reliable food supply. For much of the pandemic, we have had no legs of the stool. You need one leg of the stool to limp along and stay in business. You need two legs of the stool to sort of make it, and you need three legs of the stool to be successful. So uh, hats off to Cecilia, who's here with us today. I'm really excited to, uh, to hear from her and, and give her the opportunity to, to share her story of how she's fared through this pandemic. Um, these local restaurants are the hearts of our community. And I think we all know what we've lost um, by not being able to experience um, these wonderful places uh, here in Salem, where we all live. And just so grateful that we still have Cecilia and her team in place uh, so that I can get my butternut squash soup um, here shortly. So with that, I'm going to stop sharing my screen and turn it over to Cecilia for her portion of the program. Thanks so much. Thank you, Jason. Um, and thank you, everyone, for um, showing up today and wanting to hear about what we have been facing in our industry uh, for caring enough about us to make this a topic uh, for the Salem City Club. So thank you very much. And Jason, thank you for the comprehensive data. Um, it's It was really interesting and eye-opening to hear the statistics statewide uh, versus what uh, we are experiencing on the local level, or IE specifically, you know, can um, speak to my own business. So, yes, it's been a really difficult um, past two years, and I am grateful that uh, because of the strength of our um, business in this community, we are celebrating 22 years in uh, business in Salem, and I um, know that us being able to weather this pandemic has so much to do with a strong foundation of support. Additionally, having those years of business experience of riding the waves of um, recessions and how to pivot, um, you know, definitely was incredibly helpful to have in our toolbox. I will say, however, nothing could quite prepare us for what hit with this pandemic. And I know that is true for everybody. Um, there are um, three interesting and most, um, I think, prevalent factors, I think, to speak about for um, our my business uh, in particular with Wild Pear and how we um, were able to get through this, but we had to address first were the areas of um, takeout, um, staffing, and weather. And then I'll throw in there on top of that, um, having a sister and business partner that at the exact same time that the pandemic was announced and we were shut down for dine-in, um, my sister Jessica was also diagnosed with the terminal stage four cancer. Um, anyway, so that was uh, incredibly difficult for both myself and my brother Mike at Ritter's as Jessica, or you know, sister restaurants and uh, Jessica was a mutual partner in both myself uh, originally um, at Ritter. So um, I have to thank the community and I know many of you continuing to support us during that very difficult uh, time and transition. 
of having to, as business owners, Mike and I, um, singularly, but leaning on one another, learn to pivot through this and support her through that journey. So our both of our staffs had quite a big emotional and physical load to undertake um, during this time. So getting back to when we were shut down, the um, to dine in and to go, many businesses with our model, which is full service and um, dine in, we we'd always had a fair amount of takeout service, but our model is for dine-in. And so therefore, our overhead reflects that with the amount of real estate that we pay for in overhead uh, with our lease, as well as uh, the utilities, the staff, the insurance, um, you know, to be able to operate. So our overhead costs are very high for that model and it's not sustainable. So every time that we were given the mandate that we had to go to um, takeout service only, we were at incredible deficits operating, hemorrhaging financially. And um, had we not received a PPP loan, I can honestly say that we did not have enough in reserves to be able to stay open. We would have had to have closed. And I don't know what bank would have extended a line of credit to especially our industry during this time, uh, but that's what would have been required in order for us to continue staying open. So I'm very grateful that we um, got the first PPP loan that can allowed us to continue operating. Um, and then um, the what we faced when we had to close eventually um, at the end of last 2021, the uh, holiday season, I had made the decision to stay open, even though again, in the fall, we had been faced with another shutdown, but we had also just lost my sister and I couldn't do that to the staff um, and to the community. I couldn't really face how we could just shut the business down. And um, we had already suffered enough loss. I didn't want to do that to them. So we stayed open and hemorrhaged money again, and fortunately had another round of PPP that became available and qualified. That being said, it's still uh, looking at our numbers projecting with nothing in catering on the books because that's always been 50% of our business. We're not just a restaurant. We are unique in that in Salem that we have also been strong and been able to weather recessions because we're a dual business under one roof that makes us highly efficient. We had nothing, we had lost all of our catering. So we had gone from um, record uh, numbers in 2019 to then dropping 65% in revenue from 2019 through the end of 2020. So I closed and during that time, looked at what we could do, what I could do um, in trying to pivot again and weather this storm of waiting until we could reopen. And then when we could reopen to full service, what could I do to set us apart from the competition? Um, how could we sustain ourselves? And it was um, basically we were facing an identity crisis. And so I had to look at our model. 
You're tuned to all-volunteer community radio KMUZ, Turner, broadcasting to the Mid-Willamette Valley on 88.5 and 100.7 FM. This is our weekly public affairs program, The Forum. I'm Forum producer Stella Schaffer. Jason Brandt, a former Salem Chamber Director, is head of a hotel-motel hospitality industry association, and a local view of the workforce came from Cecilia Ritter, the longtime owner of a familiar Salem diner, The Wild Pear. This panel, organized by Salem City Club, looked at the effect on owners and workers in the service industry during the pandemic. Dine-in is incredibly expensive. So knowing that quick-serve restaurants seem to be doing really well, and I'm friends with some owners of some chains um, in Salem, and I was you know, glad to see that quick-service-style restaurants drive throughs were booming because shutdown of dine-in. But how could capitals on um, that sort of model, not really having a drive through and not um, our food not being that style. So I went ahead with a plan to take out some tables in our dining room and we put in a deli market for a quick serve for people coming in wanting wild pear food, soups and sandwiches and salads that were grab and go. And for those that weren't ready to return to inside, um, you know, dining, even when the band was lifted. So that seemed like a really good idea and I still believe in it, but, um, I'll get to, I'll get to that. I'll come back to that and what challenge has been. Um, that being said, we also factored in the weather and knowing that more people were comfortable sitting outside and with the weather that we face here in Oregon, um, it, having tents outside, but at the time, we did not have the permission to expand out into the street. So I decided through this remodel also to wait until June for us to reopen so that we could capitalize on the outside real estate. So we have that issue, and the city was very flexible with allowing um, you know, expanding seating with tents out into the street. The city of Salem has been tremendous in trying to help us with changing ordinances and being flexible with that. That recently has been taken away, and now um, there is a more permanent option of building platforms in parking spaces in front of your business. Uh, and I know a few people that have done that. However, that doesn't really work for our model because we're one of the few that have horizontal parking in downtown Salem. So we um, don't get that full extension out into the street as some of our neighbor, as most of our neighbors do downtown. So then staffing. Here we were. I thought we can open in June. We'll have nicer weather. And as an incentive, we'll also be close to the next minimum wage increase of 75 cents come July 1. So surely we would have lots of staff. Everyone would want to come back and we would probably have a line of people um, looking for jobs and we'd have to turn people away. So much to my chagrin, that was not the case as um, having shut down a well-oiled machine that had been 20 years going and then to reopen, I was um, surprised at the level of employees that did not return. Most of them were front of the house uh, or part-time employees. Um, my full-time and management um, core 
kitchen staff that have been with me, some of them had been with me for 16 years, they all returned. And so we found ourselves in this interesting um, spot of not being able to open when we had projected because I couldn't get enough staff, um, ones to return. And uh, we even wouldn't even get a response back as to why they weren't coming back. They just ghosted us. It became um, apparent to me later that uh, as I was speaking with staff that had come back and I was able to hire more people as the summer progressed closer to the fall, um, because minimum wage extra $300 a month was going to expire for most of them, um, then they started returning to the market. So we faced a challenge of people that were actually making more money staying home because of the federal unemployment subsidy. And I was grateful for it. Cecilia, I think we lost you where you were talking about uh, competing with the unemployment payments that the employees were getting and that being a disincentive for them to return to work, even though you generate tip income on top of base wages. So. Yes, thank you. So I had to, knowing this, how could we be more competitive? Um, how could I get people to come back to work you know, for us? And um, we had the increase in the minimum wage. I went ahead and extended that minimum wage increase to all of the staff uh, across the board and um, increased the base wage for all of the back of the house employees. Um, and let's see, I've got some notes here. And then also had extended our health insurance. Um, I had a plan for the entire company and I offered more flexible scheduling. So I was trying to hire up, meet the needs that um, people were asking for. And, um, and even then I still found it was very difficult. And so when the market we reopened with the market deli, we had it full. And for the first couple of weeks, we were doing great. The restaurant people were returning. We were getting, we were busy. We were um, starting to get caterings back. We had some weddings coming in. People were doing more corporate uh, luncheons. And then um, people were coming in and buying out of the market. And it was great. Um, however, because of the staff shortage, we started to compromise in the level of service that we were giving and or the product. It was inconsistent going out because I didn't have enough hands and everybody was working full-time and beyond that I did have. And after two to three weeks of that, I realized that this was not sustainable. So I had to, something had to give. So what gave was the marketplace. I had to pare back on what we could provide in that daily so that we could focus on the dine-in and the catering. Uh, and so I ended up because of that, that real estate that I had taken and budgeted for um, with takeout was now not being used. And I, cause I couldn't use it for table space for dine-in. So I lost some, uh, some real estate and ability to make revenue there. But what we did see that as the summer progressed, we, um, the restaurant started to gain momentum, never quite where we were at 2019 in, in terms of sales. But uh, through um, um, the fall and 
through the holiday season, we saw a much greater demand for catering to return. And we had always been a 50-50 model in terms of revenue. And uh, I could see that our catering was starting to come back where we were more at a, um, 80-20. And then as we got into December, it was closer to um, the 50-50 model again. So at the end of 2021, uh, I was um, excited to see that we had made some gains. We increased about 20% over 2020 and our, um, we were down only 40% from the prior year. So looking forward into 2022, I project my hope is that we are going to be able to break even. I've got 40% of revenue to regain in order for us to do that. However, I was the restaurant was closed for several months at the beginning of 2021. We did keep our catering operations open. However, that was still very nominal. So I am hopeful that we can um, make that up in 2022. That doesn't mean profit-wise that we're going to come out with profit because my overhead now is more expensive than it has been to operate. With the increase of costs, the supply chain, as Jason had mentioned, it is so hard to get product consistently. And therefore, when you have high demand and little supply, you have increased costs, inflation. So we have that. We have the extra um, overhead expenses and staffing that I had taken on in order to compete, to get people to come back and or to just get people to want to work for me. And so to retain them. So I run at a labor cost with benefits higher than I ever have, even in my record year um, of sales in 2019. So I, I don't expect us to um, come out as a wash. I expect that I probably will still have some sort of deficit at the end of the year. And I was one of those fortunate people that got the restaurant revitalization fund in addition to my PP loans. So that gives you an idea Cecilia, uh, th this is Hans. Cecilia, this is Hans. You're cutting out. Why don't you stop your video? And let's see if that helps. Okay. okay. All right. So sorry about that. Um, so in getting both the PPP loans and the restaurant revitalization fund, um, I still show coming out if I take away the RRF, um, a drastic loss for the year. That is how much my overhead is. However, because I've had those, um, they are keeping me afloat. So my goal for 2022 is to break even uh, or have just a, a nominal loss. And my hope is for 2023, as Jason said, what the numbers show, that we will be back on track. Um, what I also wanted to say, I've got some notes here, um, excuse me, that um, what we also faced coming up are, again, we have the um, increase of minimum wage that continues to hit our industry. We have more 
state uh, mandates that are coming down. We've got um, paid family leave. You know, all of these things in theory are, are um, I think, necessary and are important for sustaining um, the workforce in our society. However, when it comes to like small business, there really is no government assistance or ways for us to factor in how we can make allowances. It always goes to our bottom line. And the average restaurant bottom line, you are successful if you profit anywhere from three to 5%. That are our margins. So for every dollar you spend, we hope to make three to five cents. That is how slim it is. So when we have continued state mandates of minimum wage increases with no regard to a tip credit, so tipped employees get in addition these increased wages and your back of the house or other administrative assistant positions don't have access to that then um, we have this continued struggle within our industry of getting leveling the playing field. And how do we do this to our bottom line that we can continue to A, stay afloat um, and you know, make this a business that's worthwhile. So we have a very unique set of circumstances within our industry that uh, make this the hardest time to survive in uh, during a pandemic and the condition, the political condition of the state that we live in. Um, they're not worth, it's not to say that they're not worthwhile endeavors. It's just that we need more help when on a state level uh, with these continued mandates that come down to us. So um, I think that that's a pretty comprehensive look at what we have experienced, and um, if there's any other questions that you guys have, I'm happy to answer. So Hans, if you have any, feel free to throw them out. So thank you for taking the time to listen and hearing our story. Uh, hello there, uh, I'm Hans West, and it's question and answer time. What are some other ways that restaurants owners have to incentivize workers to come back? And that's from M. Chan. Sure, Hans. Yeah, so there's a lot of hiring bonuses that are taking place uh, across the state. Uh, as Cecilia mentioned, uh, I want to make sure folks know that uh, the reality in our industry with uh, the higher end minimum wage compared to other states, plus the fact that we do not have a tip credit in Oregon, there's seven states across the country that don't have a tip credit. I just sent out a PDF that has a bunch of factoids and graphics that I think would be really interesting for folks uh, to review. These are little facts that we're putting up throughout our uh, Taste Oregon Legislative Reception, uh, which is here in uh, Salem at the Convention Center on Tuesday night, this Tuesday night. So it's a once a year event that we do with legislative leadership uh, and our operators drive into Salem to have conversations with our legislators uh, so that they understand the reality uh, of what it means to run a restaurant or a lodging business. So the margins are very thin. 95 cents of every dollar a customer spends in our restaurants goes back into the food the people that work there and the place. Um, so it is definitely, I would say, a, a service to the community when it comes to how slim those margins are compared to some other industries. And so every little bit uh, of extra pressure on the bottom line 
makes it that much harder for these local businesses to survive. But having said that, hiring bonuses are out there. I've seen everything from $500 to sign up and stick with employment in the restaurant for 90 days or more, all the way up to $5,000 bonuses uh, to sign on and join restaurants. And then we're seeing a lot more uh, of our operators look at more comprehensive benefits, um, co-op health opportunities, um, even traditional health plans uh, to try to convince uh, folks that uh, we're an industry worth coming back to, um, hoping that they get over that that fear that some still have about public facing positions in the time of a pandemic. Yeah, I, I had just kind of glossed over that. But uh, in terms of uh, what we had to do um, was offer a traditional health insurance plan that had three different levels that they could choose from. Uh, and that came at a great expense uh, to us to do that. Um, and then offering basically what hours do you want to work? what works for you. We had to change our model around what we need and when when you need to be here versus uh, what's going to work for you. And then start um, plugging in plug and play where people could work. That's where we put them. And so um, pretty much give, deferring to them on their availability versus saying in the old model, well, this is the job. This is what we need. Uh, this is when you need to be here. Um, additionally, uh, we also had recently, I had hired someone, um, a professional business and like life coach to come in and do a workshop for my whole company on a day that we were closed. And then we ended it with um, a great fun party and, uh, and dinner that I had catered for everyone. And basically it was the idea was to um, make sure that my staff had a voice heard and to know what it is that they want in the workplace, what the, what they need more of. And, um, and it was really, really um, eye-opening and interesting to hear the, um, I think the vast response, which all of my core employees that have been with me for, you know, many years that came back without hesitation um, had said that the thank you that they got um, and the pay that they had was uh, uh, you know, more than ample and they appreciated it. And then many of the new staff that have only been with us for six months or less than um, saying that they um, wanted uh, you know, the money that the, and they wanted even more money. And uh, I had already increased my base wages um, two to three dollars an hour for staff. So I um I'm realizing that, um, you know, I, I'm going to have to address this if I'm going to retain people for the long run, the ones that were new to, to my company. Um, so it's still a challenge. It's not, there is no real fix for me right now. I am. Um, so I'm debating how I'm going to proceed with that. Uh, we have three more questions uh, from George Dyer. How do chain restaurants affect local restauranteurs? Restauranteurs, yes. And I want to add to that. Can you see? Because I think it's in a similar vein. Can you see a restaurant get very busy with takeouts and and also sit in, uh, also attendees? I mean, people coming in, such that they are making as much, if not more, money. And uh, whoever wants to take that first, Jason or Cecilia. Yeah, I would just caution everyone on the call to to not drive by a restaurant, see a full dining room and think that everything's fine and well and they'll be good. <laughs> so there are more like one of the sl the last slide that I shared with you is the fact that most restaurants out there have more debt 
on the books than they've ever had just to survive the pandemic. So their, their temporary time that you might see with a dining room full is great to hopefully help their numbers pencil out for that month, but it will do very little to tackle the significant debt that they've never carried before as a business owner just to get through a two-year pandemic. So that's very important to know. When it comes to the dynamics between local restaurants and then corporately owned restaurants, remember that a lot of local restaurants include people that are in our community here that own franchises that are not corporately owned restaurant locations. So there's a lot of brands like Elmer's Restaurants is an example uh, of a brand that has corporate locations that they corporately run. But then you also have franchisees that are a mom and pop that own one location or two locations and operate very similarly to what Cecilia does. So what we anticipate is that corporately owned restaurants across the nation have more reserve and capital to potentially take more market share from local restaurants. And that does concern us. I feel like the dynamics at play in Salem don't necessitate any type of a you know corporate chain takeover, if you will. I think that we have enough relief funding um, through the payroll protection program rounds ones and two, the employee retention tax credit program, and those that got the restaurant revitalization fund to keep our local restaurant footprints intact here locally. I would also say though that um, the models, I'm not worried about and haven't felt threatened by the chains and uh, well, I guess the fast food chains. You're gonna you're coming to the independently owned restaurants like mine versus a drive-through chain because of the experience and the different food that we're offering. What I saw was that whenever we're in the um, shutdown mode of dine-in and we're only allowed to do the takeout, that anything that's a quick serve or, um, you know, and drive-through offerings, those businesses were doing really well. But when we go back to the um, dine-in, then, you know, I, I really feel like the playing field is equalized again. I, I don't feel like I'm competing with them in that regard. Corporate, uh, corporately owned chains have a lot more resources to be able to offer more to, to their bottom line. They've got more cushion so they can offer higher wages. They are more competitive. I did lose two of my front of the house employees to a corporate restaurant that didn't want to come back to uh, independently owned because they knew that they could weather any more of the um, you know changes or pivots that businesses have to make and have a more sustainable bottom line income. So they're there is that. However, franchisee owners like McDonald's is, you know, a franchise, um, you know, Subways, all of these businesses are franchisees and they're locally owned and they employ local people. And um, I don't feel in competition with them in any way and uh, and feel and they need to be supported just as much as we are. We do have uh, one from. Les Margosian, Cecilia and Jason, could you please comment on supply chain problems facing Salem businesses? We have a lot of supply chain issues. We just from um, either perishable protein to even um, supplies like takeout containers, paper bags. We there was a time when you couldn't get the size of paper bags that we always have from our supplier. We always have and many of you know this if you've gotten takeout from us. For years, we have these beautiful white craft bags with full color logo on them. 
And when we went to reorder, our minimum went from a 5,000 bag minimum to a 25,000 bag minimum. And the cost went from 60 cents up to 79 cents. So you can just figure the math on that. We weren't going to do that. We couldn't do that. We ended up having to source many different kinds of bags. And to this day, I don't have them printed anymore. Uh, I have stickers that go on them. And those bags are more expensive. Everything is just more expensive. All of my takeout is uh, my uh, containers are more expensive and harder to get. So we end up changing uh, the look of our, what our brand has always been is not the same anymore. And we use what we can. So we've had to be flexible in that regard. Uh, And then additionally with proteins on our menu, um, I had to rewrite the menu and we are undergoing another rewrite of the menu because we're having consistency issues uh, with too many of like produce and or protein items. And the prices, when they do come back available, they have tripled in cost. But you know how expensive it is to reprint your menu, to go through a reprint every time. Like the menus that I have at the Wild Pair, each one cost $4.75 from the time that I send it out to our graphics person to the printing cost, the laminating cost. All of the cost is $4.75. So every time I have to do a reprint, there is a significant cost. So I am looking at now, how do I... Uh, rewrite the menu was still keeping our standards and the local favorites, but do it in a way that is going to uh, make sense to us, to our bottom line, because again, it's just digging into my pockets. Um, I don't have the profit margin that I used to comfortably live with. And and I will say that, uh, you know, wild paired with the strong support we have in the community, we have often lived in a five to 10% profit margin. And um, in 2021, we were negative 15%. So it's an ongoing issue. And you're going to see that. I just ask for grace for our industry. If you see, you go to a restaurant and they're out of something, um, it's something that they've always had and, or it's off the menu now it's because it no longer is uh, sustainable to keep it on the shelf. Um, and, or it's just not available to you. Thank you very much, Jason and Cecilia. We really appreciate this. I certainly have a lot more questions and uh, unfortunately we can't get to them, but I have learned a lot and I think we all feel the same. You've been listening to a review of what we learned during two years of pandemic about the effect on workers in the service industry in Oregon and how they've coped. KMUZ would like to thank Salem City Club for the audio recording to make this program. And the entire panel discussion and Q&A is permanently posted on the City Club archive at SalemCityClub.com. This is Community Radio KMUZ Turner, broadcasting local news and public information for the Mid-Willamette Valley. This program is aired on Friday at noon and repeated Sunday morning at 8 o'clock. Thanks for listening. (music) 